thoughts too and clarify perhaps Zechariah 9 a bit more even though we thought we were done with it uh, the thought occurred to me that some might say am I making too great a leap to call New York Tyre this section is just beginning to clear I think uh, and I'm not sure I have all the answers in here there's quite a bit of reference here at the beginning of chapter 9 to Arab cities uh, to Ishmael to Damascus and so on and I wonder since they're lumped with the coastal cities of <coughs> Israel if they will share the same fate as their half-brother Israel that is Ishmael uh, I'm thinking now of the prophecy about the king of the south pushing at the king of the north and being overrun uh, about the same time as we are destroyed is Israel uh, at the time the abomination is set up in Jerusalem and it's time for the church to leave uh, it would appear that overrunning those Arabic countries on the way to set up the abomination in Israel might be the key to this so that uh, Ishmael and Israel uh, have destruction at approximately the same time and that may be why the cities of Israel along with uh, the Arabs some of the Arabic cities are mentioned here as well but there are a couple of things or a couple of quotes I want to make from Herbert W. Armstrong some of you may remember him saying many times over the years in fact that the Bible was written about Israel and only other nations as they impact Israel we also know that he taught that Israel today is Northwest Europe, the U.S., Canada, Australia, South Africa, etc. So Israel is no longer in that Middle East, except for perhaps a few scattered Israelites and some of Judah mixed with Edom and others. And Judah is scattered among all the nations, and most of Judah, far more of Judah today, is in New York, Miami, and Los Angeles, perhaps London and a few other cities of Israel than they are in the nation of Israel today. So when it talks about Judah and Israel, it isn't speaking just of that holy land. The Bible obviously was written from that perspective, but the promised land to our peoples was much, much greater than the Middle East. So the overwhelming majority of Israel is no longer there. But as a Bible writer, and perhaps as part of the coding to make prophecy unreal or hard to understand by most until God himself begins to reveal it uh, most of the Bible was written from the perspective of the Middle East but with our understanding of who Israel is and that the Bible is written to Israel today uh, we have to translate these Old Testament types to what is the reality of the situation today now it may very well be that Ashkelon and Ashdod and Tyre and Zidon as their original villages and most of them still exist Gaza and so on uh, may also be destroyed along with the cities of present day Israel wherever it happens to be around the world uh, Matthew 10.23 came to mind where the disciples were told that they would not go over the cities of Israel uh, before the end comes <clears throat> well where is Israel today? I think most of us, with the understanding we got from Mr. Armstrong, plus Matthew 10.23, anytime we read 10.23, uh, 
We didn't think of Ashdod and Ashkelon and uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. In fact, Tel Aviv's a good example. It wasn't even there when the Bible was written, and yet it's the biggest coastal city of Israel today. It's the capital, right on the coast, and none of these other cities that are mentioned here in chapter 9 even come close to the size and the importance of Tel Aviv today. But how did you write about Tel Aviv if you were Zechariah when he wrote? Uh, It's the coding, it's the understanding that is important for us to grasp. So when we say we wouldn't go over the cities of Israel, we know we're Israel. To me, that always meant London, Amsterdam, Cape Town, New York, San Francisco, L.A., uh, Chicago, uh, Montreal, Quebec, and so forth. And I think it did to the majority of the church. We weren't thinking of these little towns in the present-day nation of Israel. So I don't think it's any great stretch to include these with Ashdod, Ashkelon, Tyre, and Zidon. So these coastal cities, when written, are now just expanded to include all the coastal cities of Israel. Um, That we understood this principle, I don't think is hard for us to grasp at this point. Our enemies to the north, as the Bible refers to them, are not now the original Babylon, Chaldea, Assyria, or the original priests of Baal, or Ishmael, Esau, and Edom, where they then lived. Uh, Edom was to be scattered through the fat places of the earth there in Genesis 49, or wherever, what was it, 49, wherever uh, he was given his blessing, there wasn't much left, but he was told that he would hate Israel the rest of his life and fight Israel, and eventually would predominate over Israel and dwell in the fat places of the earth. Well, where do you have huge colonies of Jews today? As I said, New York, uh, L.A., Chicago, Miami, London, Uh, the Edomites are scattered through the banking world some of them are thought of as Jews and actually they're Edomites so this isn't just talking about the peoples of Amman, Jordan at this point or of uh, some of the Edomite cities uh, Ammon, Moab and Edom it's talking about peoples that are scattered throughout where Israel is today in fact Ishmael or the Arabs are about the only ones of the traditional peoples who are still left in the Middle East. The Assyrian has gone north to Germany. Uh, See, that's the same typology, and we've accepted this for the last 40, 50 years, that Assyria is Germany. It isn't uh, the Tigris-Euphrates anymore. Babylon is gone. There's no city there. But we understand that the Assyrian, the Chaldean, and these peoples have moved into Europe and other areas. So it's the principle we've always understood. We're just defining it a little closer here, perhaps, Uh, in looking at these prophecies today. Tyre was the major coastal city and financial center. Um, What if our coastal cities were destroyed? Think about it. Boston, let's look at the United States. Boston, New York, Newark, Baltimore, Washington, Miami, Tampa, St. Pete, New Orleans, Houston, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. You could name some more that are actually even uh, coastal cities, such as Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, Montreal. You might not think those are coastal cities, but uh, they're tied to the coast. Memphis, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, These are all 
connected through the Mississippi River system or the St. Lawrence Seaway as coastal cities, even though they're far inland. We have very few truly inland cities, such as Dallas, Denver, and Salt Lake City. But if the coastal cities did not supply these inland cities, they would die very quickly. So when he's just talking about the destruction of our coastal cities here, um, that includes <coughs> probably all of these, and it also includes Sydney, Melbourne, Darwin, Perth, uh, Canberra, perhaps Christchurch in Auckland, Cape Town, Durban, East London, and uh, Port Elizabeth. What if all these cities were destroyed? Uh, those countries would be destroyed as well because it's the coastal cities where most of the people live and it's where most of the trade occurs and where most of the financial strength is and that's just the way it is so I think he's talking here in Zechariah about the destruction of Israel wherever it is not just those little towns along the coast of present day Israel now I'd like to make another overall comment here and that is that this context from chapters 9 to 14 of Zechariah seems a little muddy in the terms of trying to determine what applies to physical Israel or the church specifically. And I think the reason for that is that the parallel lines of spiritual Israel and physical Israel are beginning to merge. At some point most of the church except the faithful remnant will be sharing the same fate of physical Israel. So these storylines begin to blend here so that they cannot be totally separated, and it makes it a little difficult at times to understand, is this talking about um, the return of blessings as we saw at the, be at the end of uh, chapter 9, verse 17? He talks about the flock of his people in verse 16, so it, it seems to be referring to the church specifically, but on the other hand, uh, that remnant which survives physically and is converted during the millennium will also be the flock of his people at that time. So the storylines do continue here, <clears throat> but there is some merging because the church and physical Israel both go into the tribulation, except for that faithful remnant that will be held out. So as we go through this, keep that in mind, and uh, sometimes it's a little hard to tell what the specific reference is, but in most cases I think we can say it's probably referring to both uh, in some form or fashion. So with that, let's go on to chapter 10. Uh, we saw here in uh, verse 12 of chapter 9 uh, an apparent reference to a place of safety and the return of blessing to God's church. And of course the prisoners of hope is a remnant of Israel going in, uh, from the tribulation into the millennium will also be prisoners of hope of Christ's millennial rule and us with him so a case can be made for both here but we need to apply it to ourselves as Mr. Armstrong often said again the Bible is written for the church it will apply to physical Israel later on but right now they are concluded in unbelief God is not dealing with them and he is only dealing with the church <clears throat> he's going to arise and deal with physical Israel on a very basic level of physical destruction soon but in the meantime he's dealing only with the church and he wants the church to become in that sense millennial or a type of the millennium and the way we react to him the way we react to each other the way we live and the ability with which he is able to bless us as an additional thought in here we long for the days of Acts 2. We long for the days of um, Joel, where it talks about the return of blessings 
and that affects us here in verse 17 in the beginning of chapter 10 about the latter rains returning the blessings of God let me ask a question do you think we're ready for that and here's why I ask the question at times of great renewal at times of great blessing at times like Acts 2 when the early New Testament church formed and the Holy Spirit came like tongues of fire and they spoke in tongues and the shadow of the apostles passing over people would heal them all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders were occurring now Joel says those will occur at the end of this age as well and we'll examine that a little bit in a little while here but let's look at another side of that coin <clears throat> with that return of blessings on that level comes a commensurate responsibility and that is the part that I wonder if we're ready for remember Ananias and Sapphira at that time of great renewal and great blessing where God was very very active very very involved in a way that he has not been in recent years and, and not even at all in this end time in exactly the same way he was in Acts 2 with the beginning of the New Testament church we've not seen that kind of miracles I am convinced we will but with that we need to understand that if God is, is giving that kind of blessing for obedience and wholeheartedness for those who do not respond wholeheartedly and who are willing to still lie who are willing to allow their human nature to have control he punishes in equal amounts that he blesses we did not see people being struck dead for lying today in the church on the other hand we don't see the miracle of the shadow passing healing people either if you have one you will more than likely have the other that is the example in the Bible so we long for the blessing but I hope we're ready for the responsibility because it will come and we will be held accountable we will be held responsible God will cut the leader of uh, the uh, rebels out of the flock and Ananias and Sapphira were rebels and they got cut out very dramatically <clears throat> so when you have dramatics on the good side you will probably also have dramatics on the bad side I think we need to keep that in mind as we live our lives and as we pray that these blessings will return that those blessings have a great responsibility with them how do we handle what we are given and God will not give it until we're ready to handle it so that with that let's go into chapter 10 because he says ask of you the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain <clears throat> uh, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field so he uses physical uh, things here to talk of spiritual blessings and perhaps some physical ones too the church in a place of safety will have to have a table prepared in the wilderness she will have to have healings because there will be no doctors there and that she will be forced in that sense to trust God for healing in the church today we have people who are going further and further from trust in God and more and more toward trust in man whereas we really should be going more and more toward trust in God and less and less toward trust in man that has to be 
this direction that the church overall is going needs to be reversed and it has to be reversed by obedience and faith and wholehearted trust in God and it doesn't come easy so he tells us to ask for this rain in its season the latter rain the latter rains or excuse me let me back up the former rains normally come between November and February Uh, and we're talking about the land of Palestine here and that's the reference that's being used and about 70% of the total rains of the year come between November and February January being the wettest time I think it would be interesting to note church history here at least recent church history Uh, most of the Southern California rains come in the January-February period I think January is probably the heaviest month and Look at the parallel with the church. The church was blessed with most of its significant events occurring in January, the time of the former rains. The gospel started. The gospel to Europe started. Even the death of Herbert Armstrong occurred in January. The conferences were always in January, ministerial conferences, a time when the ministry was updated on doctrine and procedure, when they were refreshed and were given more information to give to the flocks. We always look forward to that time of ministerial refreshing in January and to come back and give sermons with all the news about the work and what was going on in the church doctrinal updates uh, procedural updates and so on Uh, but at the same time even many many negative events occurred such as Mr. Armstrong's death or the state taking over does that typify the rains being removed from the church we always wondered well why in the middle of winter in January did it seem most of the significant events that happened to Worldwide Church of God occurred in January but they did and I don't think of all of them right now there were very very many of them this was so predictable that someone asked me in the uh, summer of 1985 if Mr. Armstrong was actually going to be allowed to die and my reply was I do not know but if he does it will be in January now this was not some great prophetic insight it was just a comment based on the history of the Worldwide Church of God that all the good events seemed to happen then and that the negative events up to that point had seemed to happen then so based on that knowledge and history I just made the comment it'll be in January I don't think it was prophetic and I don't take credit for for calling that because I did say I don't know if God will allow him to die but I just felt that based on the history you, you can begin to see a pattern and God works in patterns now let's go to Joel 2 to Joel 2 uh, here he's talking about the church and the present condition of the church uh, verse 15 blow the trumpet in Zion sanctify a fast call a solemn assembly and it talks about the priests the ministers in verse 17 weeping between the porch and the altar and asking God's people to be spared and we're looking at the scattering here that is occurring right now Um, in verse 21 he says fear not O land be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things be not afraid you beasts of the field for the pastures of the wilderness do spring for the tree bears her fruit the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength and this can be applied I think ultimately physically but primarily right now spiritually be glad then you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God for he has given you the former rain moderately we've had some blessing but not a whole lot and he will cause to come down for you the rain 
the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. So he's going to give us such blessings that he equates all the rain of the year coming on the church all at once and he says it will be in the first month. Now we're not talking January here. We're talking Abib because that's the reference God uses. So he's going to, when the blessings come back and they come back in abundance as they did in Pentecost uh, in Acts 2, they're going to come back apparently in the first month of the year around Passover time. Verse 28. Uh, Well, let's see. Verse 27. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. Implying again. Uh, Remember the scriptures we read in the last sermon about uh, him being a wall of fire around Jerusalem, his people, in Zechariah 2 and in Isaiah 4 about him being a covert and so on. Uh, So this seems to be the same end-time context he's talking about. And shall come to pass afterward, verse 28, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before. This is just before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So, we are going to receive blessings such as we never have before. When Peter saw what was happening in Acts 2, he thought that this was what God was doing, that Joel 2 was being fulfilled. And perhaps in type it was, but not the final fulfillment. We're still looking forward to that, and and it appears that it is going to come in the first month of the year when he just suddenly rains blessings on us like we have never known. And it is just before the day of the Lord. And we are just before the day of the Lord now. I don't know how far before, but not very far before, I don't think. So the church are the only ones, or the remnant of the church really, are the only ones receiving blessing at this time. This isn't talking about physical Israel uh, until the millennium. This is a prophecy for now, before the day of the Lord, and can only refer to the church because the church is the only one that has a relationship with God. The rest are concluded in unbelief. The latter rains normally come in the February to April, uh, with the last significant rains coming in April, right around or just before uh, Passover time. So the time for us to ask, he says, is in the time of the latter rains. So the latter rains will be coming in the first month So the time leading up to that from February to April is the specific time he tells us to be making these prayers. And I, for one, am now trying to remember this every year to pray for those latter rains because I don't know which year it is that God is going to begin to return those to us, but he tells us that's the time of the year that they will come. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. That is just ahead of us. The former rains have just begun in Jerusalem, um, end of October, beginning of November. In fact, they were talking about the Palestinians and the Israelis recently fighting over there, and that it was raining. So the former rains for this cycle have already started there, and the latter rains will then begin in February uh, or thereabouts into April. And that would be a good time, I think, 
to honor this verse and do what God tells us to do here and pray that his blessings begin to come in the first month. Now, again, I don't know which year that's talking about, but I think we can start doing that every year from now on and we won't go wrong because one of these years when we make that prayer, it's going to happen. That's like praying that you be counted worthy to escape these things that are about to break on our nation. Um, I've been praying that off and on pretty steadily for the last umpteen years because we know it's coming. We just don't know what year, but that's a general prayer. Uh, on the other hand, he says, pray that it not come during inclement weather. Uh, it's translated winter in King James, but it really should say bad weather. And most of the bad weather, of course, comes in the fall. And there are many things, many scriptures that indicate God may take his church out in the springtime when the turtle dove, as it says in Song of Songs 2, is singing, and so forth. I won't go into that. We've covered it before. But specifically here, we're told to pray during the times of the latter rain for that kind of blessing. And he even tells us in Joel that it will happen in the first year of the uh, first month of the year in Abib. Now, going on to, uh, well, wait a minute. I guess I've covered enough on that. I was, I'll, I'll refer you to Ezekiel 34, 26, where he talks about showers of blessings coming on us. And the context there is of Ezekiel 34 is of the shepherds destroying the sheep, and they're not being an overall shepherd, uh, but that once repentance comes to a remnant of his people, he is going to give showers of blessings. So you see the context there indicates that right after these present troubles we're suffering are over, those blessings will return. And the same is true of Isaiah 51 and 52. Isaiah 51 refers to a time when we don't have any man among all the sons that she has raised as her leader. Uh, a reference to the two witnesses in Isaiah 52. A reference to Christ's sacrifice that makes everything possible that is about to happen in chapter 53. And then in chapter 54 and 55, he describes all kinds of blessings coming back to the church. So this ties very well with Haggai and Zechariah, which talk about building the latter temple and God bringing peace and blessing uh, back to the church. All these prophecies point to Haggai and Zechariah. So let's go on now to uh, chapter 10 and verse 2 of Zechariah. For the idols have spoken vanity... And the diviners have seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled, because there was no shepherd. I just referred to Isaiah 51, where it mentions that. It mentions it in Micah 4, that our king is dead, our counselor is perished. And there are several other references in the Bible as well on this particular theme. So, God is going to return blessings to his remnant of the church, but at the same time he's talking here about the miserable condition of the church today, that the ministry has given false dreams. Uh, remember uh, back in Ezekiel where it talks about uh, the dreamers of dreams who uh, preach peace, peace, when there is no peace. Uh, and God says, don't preach peace in a time like this. He says there's going to be trouble, and he is going to scatter and yet the ministry keeps saying, overall, here and there, for the most part, and that's the message you get, as long as you're in our organization, everything will be fine with you. Because we're Philadelphians and everyone else is Laodiceans, so they preach peace and safety to their people, 
instead of warning them of the troubles that are to come and that the scattering, as we're going to see before we're through today, is going to continue and get far worse than it is today. So they were comforted in vain. It's going to come to nothing. All this, if you're in our organization, you'll be fine because none of us can afford to be comfortable. We all have to repent, grow, overcome, change, and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Otherwise, we as individuals will be lost, even if those around us are saved. So the flocks went their way. They began to wander around, in other words, reminiscent of Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, and they were troubled because there was no shepherd. My anger, verse 3, was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats, those who led in the wrong direction. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Now out of this, God is going to bring peace, safety, and comfort, but not before a lot of trouble comes first. Now, Christ himself came from Judah, and it talks about him in verse 4. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the nail uh, driven into the wall in a sure place. It will not be removed, as Isaiah 22, 23 says. Out of him the battle bow. He is the one who is able to make war and make it successfully. Out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. So this may apply to physical Judah, physical Israel going into the millennium, but right now he's dealing with the church first. And the scattered remnant that is going to be gathered, as we will see as we go on here. So Jesus Christ is the one who is accomplishing this, and he is going to have a physical leadership under him that will build the temple, and that's what Haggai and Zechariah, and we're still in Zechariah, are all about. The rebuilding of the latter temple and their confrontation with the world before the return of Christ. And as we've talked before, and I gave a sermon on, it seems that... uh, Israel represents worldwide church of God and Judah represents the splits that came off from there. Uh, Zerubbabel was a Jew. Joshua was a Levite. And of course both are lumped as Judah along with Benjamin as the tribe of Judah. So he's going to deal with Judah first. He is going to draw a remnant out of all these scattered churches and put them together under those two leaders. And there again, that's what Zechariah and Haggai are all about. And that's what he's talking about here. See, the context is the beginning of blessings before the day of the Lord, verse 1. It's talking about the troubles in the church and God's anger with the ministry right now. And then he's beginning to talk of restitution and gathering in this context, not a millennial context, but before the day of the Lord. So, let's see, let's go on then. Uh, We didn't finish chapter, or verse 6. For I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. We've seen many scriptures showing he's turned his face for us temporarily for a little while, but he's going to turn back, and he's going to hear our prayers again. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. Ephraim also is a type of the church, because God reversed the birth order himself, and calls Ephraim his firstborn. And we are the firstfruits, the firstborn of many brethren. Well, Christ is the firstborn, the very first of many brethren, but we also will be born of many brethren as well, he being our elder brother. 
So they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Now this, I think, can be used as a reference pointing forward to Malachi 4, where it says that Elijah will uh, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And we'll devote a whole sermon to that, God willing, because there is an incredible story there that we have never really grasped in the Church of God historically. Uh, we tried some YOU programs that didn't work very well, and certainly the hearts of the fathers and the children are not together, and there are several levels on which that must be done, and I'm not going to get into that story now, but I think this is a reference to that. I will hiss for them, other translations say I will whistle, or I will signal or motion to them and gather them. So God is going to whisper and begin to gather his remnant together. Uh, that's what Haggai talks about, about he will stir up the people and cause them to come to build a latter temple. And their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. For I have redeemed them. We are called the redeemed. What are the first fruits? Paul constantly refers to those redeemed from this world uh, as the first fruits. And they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again, or turn around. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. Now this sounds like uh, the gathering of God's people during the millennium, and perhaps it does refer to that. But in the context of Zechariah, I think that it can also very well be applied to him gathering his scattered peoples from all over the world, wherever they happen to be, and the captivity that this world has held over over us, whether it be Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, these are all enemies of God who have captivated and misused and abused God's people. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. So he brings them back to uh, the Holy Land, as we refer to it, the Middle East. And I think that is referring specifically to the people, perhaps, of uh, that come through the tribulation, being gathered back to that physical Jerusalem. But in the meantime... There's also the type here that we saw in chapter 9, that these cities of Israel indicate that God's people will be brought to their own land. The Israelites will be gathered up, in other words. Probably talking here about the place of safety, although we need to understand that the place of safety is not our goal. We need to repeat that. The goal is the kingdom of God. Uh, the other is only a temporary stop on the way, but it would be certainly a relief if we were there instead of being out in this world when all these things hit. Verse 11, And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. So, making it possible for God to gather his people then, and we see the Assyrian and the Egyptian and uh, the abomination uh, being taken down in the church ahead of us, and those who have made themselves idols will be taken down, we're going to see here in verse chapter 11 that he hasn't gotten away from the church yet. That we're not talking about just the millennium here. And I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. All right. Now let's get to chapter 11. Because I think we'll see here, that as an overall concept, as the remnant is being gathered together to build a latter temple, the scattering of the rest of the church continues unabated and gets even worse. Chapter 11, verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. The cedars of Lebanon were very, very much desired 
They were big trees that had fine lumber and were brought all the way down to Israel and to Jerusalem to build in the temple and to, to build everything that was fine. And it says that the fire may devour your cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. Now, trees in the Bible are often used as a type of men. If you'll remember the parable in the riddle of Ezekiel 17, he shows the twigs being cropped off a cedar tree, which become full-size trees, or I think the type is made of churches out of the twigs that is men the men in that particular parable and riddle indicating I believe Herbert Armstrong Joe Koch, and ultimately the leaders of, of Haggai and Zechariah who formed the latter temple uh, the twigs are taken from the top of the cedar and they become full size churches uh, two basically are destroyed the men die Herbert Armstrong and Joe Koch, uh, in the midst of Babylon in Los Angeles and then God shows that he takes another twig of the cedar there and builds that which will continue and he turns the dry tree into a live tree so that which has appeared to be dead is going to be revived, resuscitated and a time of restitution is coming for the remnant and Ezekiel 17 then shows that trees and twigs can be types of men and churches so I think what is being said here in chapter 11 verse 1 is that three major trees are cut down. Three major churches. We'll not try to identify who they might be. We'll just watch and see what happens and if this is a correct analysis in time as these events proceed. Now the context shows that this is a correct me meaning of these trees here for he uses another metaphor which is undeniably the church and its ministry. We find that in verse 3. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. We can equate, equate Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi 1, all scriptures that most church members are very, very aware of now when they've seen the ministry abuse and misuse them. So there's a howling of the shepherds. Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. Uh, does this mean feed good food to his people. Um, there's a question on that. I checked several translations, and most put this more in a negative sense, and that is fatten up the flock for the slaughter. In other words, the shepherds are going to be howling because the flock is going to be eaten up and destroyed and taken away from them. Now let's understand the time sequence here. Uh, we're in Zechariah 11. The building of the latter temple uh, as per Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 4 and so on comes before this so it appears that even as the latter temple is being built this destruction continues and not only that it appears to get much much worse here uh, as we go on in time because we haven't seen the restoration of the latter temple yet and yet we've already seen a lot of destruction and scattering but this comes in time sequence apparently after even the initial beginnings of the latter temple that huge, terrible scattering is about to occur. So, verse 3, or verse 4, excuse me, apparently refers to fattening up the flock to be killed. And that continues in verse 5, whose possessors slay them 
and hold themselves not guilty, the ministry will say, it's not our fault. These people just won't listen to us. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. As they're being slaughtered before their very eyes, spiritually destroyed, confused, lacking trust, lacking love, lacking concern for each other and for their own ministers, because the ministers have misused and abused, and I have to include myself there. I'm not trying to throw rocks at other ministers. We all have been guilty, just as the whole church has been asleep, and all the virgins slumbered and slept, so has the whole ministry been betraying to the people. Notice, though, what some of the shepherds say. I am rich. This refers to Revelation 3, I believe, where it talks about the Laodicean approach, where they say, hey, we're doing great. We're fine. We're Philadelphians. The rest of you are Laodiceans. Well, these people who suppose themselves to be Philadelphians are the ones that are saying, we're rich. We have the right doctrine. We have the right approach. We have the right focus. We have the right everything. Uh, we're the ones with the money. Um, and the rest of them are Laodiceans out there. I have a question. I've posed this before. Does claiming to be everything right and good and having every blessing from God make you a Laodicean when you think you're a Philadelphian? because you think you have everything you need and because it is taught to people if you're in our organization you'll be fine we're the right ones I think it is a very scary proposition for any of us to take that approach we need to all say I am Laodicean I slumbered and slept I need to return to God I need to repent and return to the faith once delivered I need to have the right attitude and approach and relationship with God. And each shepherd needs to learn to love and pity and treat his flock gently and lead them through the valley of the shadow of death, not continue to abuse and misuse and say, pay, pray, and stay. You really don't count for much. We are the ones doing the work. You just pay. And the people feel left out, unwanted, unneeded, underappreciated, and they are. But notice what God says under these circumstances. And he uses Zechariah here uh, as a type to act out this prophecy. Just as Isaiah went naked three years, Ezekiel laid on his side 390 days for Israel and 40 days for Judah, and uh, Ezekiel digged through the wall, that type of thing, where they acted out God's will and word and prophecy about what would happen to his people then and now. So Zechariah is depicted here as this shepherd. And God says, For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but lo, I will deliver the men, every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. So the flocks are going to be destroyed. Now we can go to many chapters and many uh, passages to prove this. And maybe there's an indication here in verse 6 that the alternate translation of several translations in verse 4 is correct, that God is going to allow the flocks to actually be slaughtered. Uh, let's go back here and tie in Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9. And here I want to pick it up in verse 9. Shall I not visit them for these things, says the Eternal, talking about our, our sin, our deceit, and various things that we do that are wrong. 
For the mountains will I take up a weeping and wailing, verse 10, and for the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation, because they are burned up, so that none can pass through them. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle, both the fowls of the heaven and the beasts are fled, they are gone. And I will make Jerusalem, again a code word for the church, heaps and a den of dragons, heaps of stones and rocks, just piles uh, reminiscent of Matthew 24, 1 through 2, where Christ said that the temple would be torn down and not one stone left upon another. And his prophecy will come true. And I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. So the church, Judah, Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it for what the land perishes and is burned up like a wilderness that none passes through? Who's going to say this? Where are we going to hear it? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart, and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them, all kinds of idolatry, not just the particular um, doctrines of Baal. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the heathen, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider you and call for the mourning women, the churches that are mourning right now, that they may come, and send for cunning women that they may come, those who can understand, and let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with waters, for a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion, the church. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded, confused because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out. Verse 20, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O you women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth, and teach your daughters wailing. Teach all the sisters, churches, wailing, and every one her neighbor lamentation. For death has come up into our windows, and has entered into our palaces, to cut off the children from without, and the young men from the streets. Speak, thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field, and as the handful after the harvest man, and none shall gather them. So all that's going to be left of the church is a handful. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let us not say, I'm a wonderful preacher or evangelist or apostle or whatever we might think we are. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not him say, I'm rich and increased with goods. But let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Eternal. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. That's why he tells us to turn with our whole hearts to God. We could recount Isaiah 3, where it talks about all the women uh, competing among themselves to see who is the fairest of all, and how God is going to strip away all their um, proclamations of beauty and their wonders and how wonderful they are, and he's going to destroy them and make their nakedness seen. Isaiah 5 talks about the flocks and the cities and the houses and the vineyards being torn down and includes great and small. Now one that I have not referred to as often, I think we should look at here quickly while we're on this subject, and that's Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. 
And let's pick it up in verse 11. Tremble, you women, you churches that are at ease. Be troubled, you careless ones. Strip you and make you bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. They shall lament for the teats, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Ah, for the days of yore when we were big and happy and healthy and had lots of money and so on. Upon the land of my people shall come up the thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. So in the church, the joyous city, all the daughters, all the houses that have been built are going to have thorns and briars. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. So this is going to be a permanent destruction. And notice when it stops. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. What does that refer to? Joel 2, 22 through 23. To uh, what we just read in Zechariah 10. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest, then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. Haggai 2, 9 the latter temple in this place will I bring peace, says the Lord of hosts. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. So, it looks like pretty heavy destruction is going to be coming henceforth. I don't know when it will start and on this level, but it appears to be what is coming next. So, Zechariah 11 the end of verse 6 says, And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. And I will feed the flock of slaughter. Now here's Zechariah acting this out. I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. So even in this utter destruction that is coming on the churches, he's going to bring a flock, the poor of the flock. Uh, I think we referred last sermon to Zephaniah 3, but I think I'll go back there again. Let's read that in the terms and the context of what we're talking about here. Just before Haggai, where it talks about the uh, building of the latter temple, we come to Zephaniah, which talks about the destruction financially in the land and how our nation Israel around us is going to be destroyed. But he says here in uh, verse 12 of chapter 3, I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor or meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. So the poor of the flock here. And that is the remnant he is going to gather together to build a latter temple. And that's what the reference is, is to here, I'm quite sure, uh, where Zechariah says, He will feed the flock of the slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. Those who are down to basic Christianity, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those who show mercy and are merciful, uh, those who uh, are peacemakers, all the things Christ said there in that Sermon on the Mount to his disciples is what he is looking for, his characteristics in this poor of the flock. Not those who consider themselves mighty and noble, not those who consider themselves to be um, the chosen ones, the Philadelphians who claim to be rich in every way, but those who are kind and tender and merciful and showing love one to another. Those are the ones, the poor of the flock, that he is going to take care of. I will feed these, and I took unto me two staves. The one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Beauty here should probably more 
properly be rendered grace or the good favor of the Lord. And most of the translations translate beauty here as grace. Uh, they treat they um, treat bands as unity, and the word comes from the in the Hebrew from the twisting together of the cords of a rope. In other words, braiding a rope together, so that all those strands are tied together and unified and become stronger once twisted together. Uh, that's the kind of unity that this is talking about. So most translations call it grace and unity. In other words, favor with God and unity with man. These are the elements of peace he will bring to the latter temple. There again, Haggai 2.9, in this place will I bring peace. So with this poor of the flock that is left of all this terrible slaughter that is about to be unleashed on the church, God is going to bring grace and unity. And I think there is a type here of Zerubbabel and Joshua who are the ones from whom the oil comes to nourish all seven churches in Zechariah 4. The latter temple will have the grace of God, the unity and peace, and only that remnant, that latter temple, will have this blessing. So it's a type ultimately of Christ, or of God the Father in Christ probably. Zerubbabel may be a type of the Father, and Joshua more a type of Christ, who carried the sins of all of us on his back. He didn't deserve it, but Joshua was a filthy man in this case, uh, who carries his own sins and is a representative of the people. So he may be more a type of Christ and Zerubbabel a type of the Father. But the Father and the Son ultimately are the source of all the feeding of the flock. They just use physical people uh, to do do it as instruments in their hand. Zechariah, of course, is the type here. Now, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. In other words... The relationship between these three particular shepherds and God is completely broken. Loathing and abhorrence pretty well break a relationship. Uh, Hosea 5 would be good to tie in here. Hosea 5, and here in verse 7, uh, talking about, uh, well, let's see, verse 6, They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them, speaking of the ministry. Uh, verse 1, O priests of the house of Israel, and so on. Verse 7, They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children, not the kind of children God wants, but strange children. Isaiah 5 says the same thing, that God gave his vineyard everything he could have, and yet it produced strange grapes, wild grapes. Uh, The ministry has not produced the kind of grapes or the kind of sheep that God desires. So, since the ministry has begotten strange children, now shall a month devour them with their portions. A month apparently being a short time. Whether it's a 30-day period or symbolic of a short time, we'll wait and see. But he is apparently going to cut off three shepherds. Now, whether that that may be referring to three uh, congregations, as uh, mentioned in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, or it may be three men in particular. I don't know. We'll wait and see. But the flocks will be cut off, certainly. And then it talks about a ministry being cut off. And the relationship between God and these three particular ones, and perhaps three particular large organizations, is going to deteriorate because they are not producing the kind of sheep God wants. Verse 9, Then said I, I will not feed you, 
That that dies, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest, everyone, rest eat everyone the flesh of another or his neighbor. So there comes a time, just like Revelation 22:11, where it's going to be too late. If we have not responded and turned to God with our whole heart in absolute repentance of idol worship, worship of ourselves, worship of the society around us, uh, whatever we have done that has not brought us close in our relationship with God, if we've not done it, we'll run out of time. It's like the ten virgins of Matthew 25 there again. Uh, They woke up, checked for oil, some had some oil, and some did not, and it was too late to get it. Says, go to them that sell, and the only reference that we have for those who will be providing oil at that time are Joshua and Zerubbabel of Zechariah 4, who have uh, seven tubes going to all seven of the churches. So the people who are responsive, responsive to God will only have them to go to. The, the analogy is of buying. Of course, you can't buy God's Spirit. Simon Magus tried that, but it's the only source, let's say. So there will come a time when it's too late. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. So God is going to break the relationship, the covenant. The covenant, perhaps, of even of salvation and of peace uh, is going to be broken. The unity and the grace uh, will be broken. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Only those who have humbled themselves and turned to God with their whole hearts will recognize what is happening. The rest of the church that is destroyed will not have a clue of what's going on. Now, verse 10 There has been a time when it's possible to reach people as per verse 7, a poor, humble people. A time when there's some food available in a partial famine. Now, I want to tie in Amos 3 here. Amos 3. Amos 3, and where do I want to begin here? Verse 14. That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So the protection of the church is going to be destroyed. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Reminiscent of Isaiah 5, where it says many houses will be cut down, uh, some great and fair, it says. Now, this is a time that it's talking about of partial famine. Notice chapter 4, verse 6. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth, nothing to eat, in other words, in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Eternal. Now, this is us right now, a church that is being scattered, and it is hard to find good food. And also I have withheld from you the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. In other words, the rain is spotty, the spiritual food is spotty, it can be had, but you never know where, it seems. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered to one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Eternal. 
I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them and so on. I've sent among you the pestilence spiritually, yet you've not returned to me in the verse 10. I've overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, not just Joshua and Zechariah 3, but all of us. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. That is, the church as a whole has not responded. Only a remnant will. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Your judgment is upon you. And down in chapter 5, he says in verse 3 that only out of a hundred will he leave ten. There's your ten percent remnant again. Now let's go back to Zechariah 11. Um, he says he breaks the covenant of grace and unity with all the people. Now let's go back to Amos because this is going to intensify and that's what we're seeing in Zechariah and it's what we're going to see in the church. Same, chapter 8, verse 11 of Amos. Behold, the days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So it's obviously a spiritual famine, clearly defined here that way. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. So now we are at total famine. So this thing is going to get worse and worse, and we see the progression right here in Zechariah 11, where they're cut off, and only a, a poor flock and a remnant is preserved, but then God is going to break his covenant with all the people, almost the entire church. Verse 11, And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So there's still, even through this breaking of the covenant that God is going to do, there's still going to be a faithful few who will follow. This is, I think, somewhat like it was with ancient Israel, whom he finally divorced for adultery. He will also annul the covenant of protection and salvation to those who will not heed these warnings that we're reading about. He can do so, and righteously so, because we first departed from him, breaking our baptism vows. We have not as a church brought every thought into captivity. We've played church while wallowing in Babylon. He wants wholeheartedness and our devotion to him. So it was broken in that day. And I said to them, now this is Zechariah acting it out again, if you think good, give me my price. In other words, I've been a shepherd, and now God has destroyed the flocks, and there's only a little one left, and I'm not going to be your shepherd anymore. If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. In other words, if you're going to give me some severance pay, fine. If you're not, um, that's okay too. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Now, obviously here, the type is of Christ. Um, and they gave him a very, very low price. Thirty pieces of silver was the price of a bond slave, nothing more. And Christ himself had willingly reduced his price and become a bond slave for your sake and mine. Thirty pieces of silver was not very much. So most of the ministry does not respond to God. And Zechariah, as a representative of Christ here, accepted that low price, that low severance pay. And the Lord said to me, Cast it to the potter. So um, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So he threw it back down at their feet. They were there at the house of the Lord. They paid him 
And he said, you have valued Christ so lowly that I'm going to throw it right back at your feet. And this happened physically with Christ when he was here on the earth, and it's, and it's symbolic of the church today and our low value of him in our lives because we tend to put other things of higher value. And that's why this whole thing is happening. We don't value the Father and the Son high enough. We value the things of this world too highly. And God is jealous over the apple of his eye. Then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands. So he'd already cut the grace of God. Then he cuts bands, or the unity, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So the relationship with God was broken, and once that is broken, the relationship man-to-man breaks too, because without the Spirit of God, we simply can't get along. The world can't, and neither can we. So the unity, then, is lost in the church. This is exactly what's been happening in the church. The brotherhood is breaking, and will continue to break, for we are headed toward total famine, not just partial. We've already experienced Amos 3 and 4. We are about to experience Amos 8. Now, let's go on. And the Lord said to me, again to Zechariah, Take to you the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that stands still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat, and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm, and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Now this may be talking about a specific man, I do not know. Um, I've heard over the years references made to various ones as perhaps fulfilling this. But Zechariah, remember, is acting something out. Foolish shepherd in verse 15 uh, is from the word meaning good for nothing or vain. Uh, The one down about the idle shepherd is, uh, well wait a minute, the idle shepherd was impious or, or was vain or good for nothing. And the other word for foolish shepherd, I guess it is, was impious. I can't read my own notes in my margin here. I looked them up. But good for nothing, vain, impious, irreverent, not truly trusting in God. Zechariah here may be a representative of the entire ministry of the Church of God overall. That we have not done these things. We've not left the 99 and sought the one. We've not taken care of the people the way we should. And God says, woe to that idle shepherd that leaves the flock. They will not have power uh, in their right arm. Their eye will be darkened so they cannot see. And that can apply to any and every one of us who have been hirelings among God's flock. That's why God is so upset. And he holds the teachers responsible for a lot of it. The flock hasn't responded either. Uh, They have their responsibility because it talks about the poor of the flock that were meek and humble and were truly Christian in their approach being preserved. And the ministry will only be preserved if it also begins to repent. So the destruction of the flock and the breaking of the covenant with God comes right back on the ministry. And that's why James 3, 1 says, Be not many masters or teachers, for we shall receive the greater condemnation. I ask, why would anyone want to be a teacher, preacher, or minister right now? It is a heavy burden and a heavy responsibility, and the consequences of not doing it right are very, very heavy, as we have just read. Especially now, as the scattering that we have seen is going to continue and get worse and worse and worse, and all that will be left of the Church of God, as we have known it, is going to be a small remnant, Isaiah 1.9, 10% Isaiah 6.13, 
and 10% we just read there, uh, where was it, in Amos, I think it was. So there isn't going to be much left. The churches are going to be torn down. So this isn't talking about the millennium. This is talking still about right now. So this is a natural break, and we're almost to the end of the tape, so I will stop here, and we'll pick it up next time in Chapter 12.